0: He paid it all upon the cross No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss He took my sin, washed it away When I was immersed in that watery grave I heard that gospel call because He paid it all Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. Today I'm going to do a full book review of a book entitled Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, written by Brian D. Estelle. The subtitle of this book is called The Gospel According to Jonah. And As I get started here, before we launch into the book review, I want to note that I have copies of this book for sale in our bookstore. and You can go online to ChristianResearcher.com and you can find copies of this book as cheap or cheaper than anywhere else on the internet. I would encourage you to please consider purchasing the book through our website if you are inclined to purchase a copy, rather than going through Amazon. It's through the sale of books that we are able to fund this podcast and be able to provide resources uh, to folks like yourself. Uh, we don't have any sponsors. We don't have any people that donate to our program. This is simply run from the uh, benefits and proceeds of the website. And so if you're going to purchase a book that we review, if we have it in stock, if we carry it in our bookstore, I would ask that you please consider strongly purchasing the book from us. Now, having said that, uh, let's talk about this Gospel of Jonah, a Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy by Brian Estelle. Some time ago, several years ago, um, I read a little book on Jonah. It's the only book I've ever read on the book of Jonah written by J.W. McGarvey. It's called Jesus and Jonah. This is considered a classic work. Uh, most folks have a copy of this book in their library. It's a very short book. And really, the purpose of that book is twofold. Number one, to argue for the historical Uh, accuracy of the book of Jonah because a lot of people discredit it as being fictitional, and so McGarvey was arguing in favor of the Bible that this book should be included in the Bible, and he argues against uh, critical scholars who didn't believe that Jonah was an inspired account of true events. Very good work in defending the authenticity of the book. He also has a really good section at the end of the book, which in my opinion is worth the price of the book, that discusses the concept of three days and three nights because of Jesus' prophecy in in Matthew chapter twelve that the sign of Jonah being in the grave three days and three nights was going to be a sign of how Jesus was going to be in the ground three days and three nights as well. And it discusses the the controversy that comes up sometime whether Jesus died on a Thursday or whether he died on Friday is traditionally held. So anyway, that's the first book that I ever and I might say the only book I've ever read about Jonah. And I I was reading and studying with some guys recently and a footnote that was brought to my attention that caused me to go back and start looking for some material on the book of Jonah because it's a fairly neglected book in my personal studies. That's a free confession here. And I think I'm not alone in that. Anyway, in doing some research, one of the books that came highly recommended from some trusted sources was Estelle's book. And I happened to have a copy of it on my shelf and I pulled it down. It's a fairly short uh, read. It's about... Uh, about 145, 135 pages, and Estelle is a very good writer. This is not a technical read by any means. This is, on a scale of one to ten, I would rate this as like a four or five in terms of difficulty of reading. I would say that he introduces some topics that are kind of difficult and involved, and it serves as an introduction, not as an in-depth treatment of those issues, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. But all in all, I think this is about a four or five on a reading scale. Very good book. I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy of this in our bookstore. Uh, I think this would do really well in introducing the book of Jonah to folks, giving a safe, proper interpretation of what's going on, and also linking it up to the New Testament so that you are forward-looking with the presentation of the Old. It still begins by talking about the artistic arrangement. And One of the things that he does is he discusses how some people are opposed to artistic arrangements in conjunction with historical accounts. And so people think, well, if you have an artistic arrangement of a book, it can't be historically accurate because that's not how how history operates. However, in the Old Testament and in the Bible as a whole, history was told in an artistic arrangement so that the arrangement itself lends toward the interpretation of the history. The way that you can arrive at an artistic arrangement of things, as Estelle properly points out, is by being selective in the material that you include from the history. Whenever you write history, you have to choose which parts are going to be in and which parts are going to be out, and when parts are left out, that doesn't mean that what is included is inaccurate history. It means that the author determined to choose or select, be selective in his method of what he was going to include. And when he includes the points that he has included, you need to pay attention to them because what he has chosen to include is important and and helpful in understanding what he has included. So he talks a little bit about the artistic arrangement, and truly the book of Jonah is a very beautifully arranged book, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. One of the things that Still argues, I think convincingly, that you have to keep in mind whenever you approach the book of Jonah, is you have to keep the covenantal backdrop that God made to Abraham. So in, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that in his seed all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as Jonah is sent as a prophet of God to Nineveh, the backdrop of that is God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations. Now, this is not the only place in the in the prophets where God is fulfilling that promise or giving hints and previews of what's going to come in the Messianic age by sending preachers to the Gentiles. A couple examples are whenever Elijah went to the, the Gentile widow of Zarephath and he healed her son, and then his companion Elisha went to I went over to Syria and healed Naaman the leper, or Naaman the leper from Syria, I should say, came to Elisha and was healed by him. Both of those stories are pointing out how God had a view on the nations. Now, I would point out that in Luke chapter 4, whenever Jesus preaches his first sermon at Nazareth, which, by the way, is taken out of chronological context, it's placed at the beginning of, of Luke's writing on purpose to begin the vision of Jesus and his public ministry through this lens. Jesus preaches a sermon that includes the account of Elijah and Elisha going to the Gentiles and preaching the gospel, and as a result of his preaching, his hometown folks of Nazareth want to throw him off a cliff and kill him. They become very angry at the message of the gospel going to the Gentiles. You might say that Jonah has the same reaction to the command of God to go preach to the Gentiles that the people of Jesus in his day have whenever Jesus tells them that the gospel is going to to the Gentile nations as well. So you have to keep in mind this concept that from the very beginning, God has had the nations as a whole in view through the blessing of Abraham's seed. It still begins... And in, his, in one of the first chapters, he begins to note that Jonah plays a representative role. And by that, he means that Jonah, by and large, represents the mindset and the feelings of the nation of Israel as a whole. Uh, the, the attitude displayed in Jonah of his hatred of going to Nineveh and his, his resistance to hope that they would be saved is how Israel was feeling at the moment. And that's part of why this story is included, to pit Israel against the Gentiles and to show that the Gentiles and Israel are really not that different from one another, except in the fact that the Gentiles are willing to repent when they are offered even a smaller limited message from God than what Israel has been receiving from God as well. As a result, Israel is going to go off into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. He references John Steck's article, and I had to do a lot of digging and actually had to write... Uh, the publishing company who had originally put out Steck's article, and they sent me a scan version of it. So, if you want to read more about the representative role of Jonah, you can email me at ChristianResearcher at Gmail dot com, and I'd be happy to forward to you Steck's uh, article in scan format regarding the represent- representative role of Jonah and Israel. Uh, the second thing that I want to note that uh, Estelle does in his book is he notes similarities between the narrative Jonah. And the scene that is recorded in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, where Jesus is asleep in the boat in the midst of a storm. It's a really fascinating thing. I, I read about this a couple years ago as I was traveling, and the writer did a good job pulling out some similarities, but he didn't point out really the significance of what's going on. I think it still does a better job than though maybe not the definitive work on the issue. It's a really good introduction to it. But what you have basically is you have Jonah being parallel to Jesus, but in an antitypical type of a form. In other words, Jonah is fleeing and refusing to do the will of God, while Jesus is the one who is about doing the will of God. And so they're opposite characters in this sense. But in the scene where both men are in a ship, they're both asleep fast, and there's, there's terminology or wording that is used in both accounts that are that are identical and linking the two stories together. And the one story, the sailors on the ship in Jonah's story, they're represented as pagan heathens who have no faith. They're scrounging around. They are idolaters, and they're not knowing what's going on in the moment. And really, the story of Jesus in the ship in Mark 4 paints the disciples in a very terrible light, and it's painting them as being like the pagans in Jonah's ship. Jesus rebukes them because they do not have faith. And so it's a very interesting uh, parallel based on wording within the text of Jonah and Mark four. I think it's it's a very interesting thing to consider and to maybe consider fleshing out some more. Third thing that he does is he points out that in Jonah chapter one and verse nine, and then again in chapter four verse two. He has what he would call creedal statements that are brought forward. And when he says creedal statements, he means statements of profound impact. And begin at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story, these form what is called an inclusio or bookends that helps form some structure and give some insight into the purpose of the story. I'll read to you. The one from chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then again, in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, the Bible says there, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, what is not this what was said when i was still in the country therefore i fled previously for tarsus for i know that you are a gracious and merciful god slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness one who relents from doing harm okay that last passage if you are familiar with the old testament is echoing exodus chapter 34 where moses is up on the mountain and receives the name of god in the first place chapter 1 and verse 9 here god is being representative Uh, he's being stated as being the creator of all things of heaven and earth. And so he's being introduced as the only God that is. And this is uh, the monotheistic concept that drives Israel that is presented in the Shema of the Old Testament. Very important statements placed in pivotal points, bookending or forming an inclusio for the book of Jonah. A fourth thing that he points out is that whenever... After Jonah has been cast into the sea, the sailors are struck with great fear, just as the disciples were struck with incredible fear after the Lord calmed the sea. The sailors cry out and they say, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're recognizing that the God that Jonah has been worshiping is greater than all of their false gods. And Estelle is quick to point out that this may not be exactly a conversion scene, but there is a movement towards conversion, the conversion concept within the book of Jonah that's being imaged here. This statement, for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased, is also found in Isaiah 46, verse 10, Psalm 115, verse 3 and Psalm 135, verse 6, and in both accounts, there are two points under consideration. First of all, the concept of the futility of serving false gods is being contrasted with the second point, that is, God's sovereignty over all of creation. The concept of land and sea is being used as a merism to include everything that has been created. And so this is a very, very neat observation by Estelle that I have not picked up on in the past. Another thing that Estelle does is that he argues in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, we should be the first, that that verse is the last verse of chapter 1, and it should actually be the first verse of chapter 2. And the reason for this is that the fish arriving on the scene starts a new movement in the story. It doesn't conclude the previous movement. The question that he raises that I've never considered before is, was the fish that God prepared and sent, was it a blessing or a curse? You know, I've always viewed Jonah having been cast in the sea and swallowed by the fish as a punishment to him and as a lesson that he needs to learn. But actually, the Bible seems to indicate that this is a blessing sent from God. And the reason I say it seems to indicate is because of the song that is recorded in in Jonah chapter 2. It's a song of deliverance, and it c- culminates or climaxes in Jonah rejoicing that he has been rescued. Now, I want to say a couple things about this poem. Whenever you see a poem inserted into a narrative scene, it is extremely important, and that's something we fail to appreciate many times because we're not as familiar with Hebrew poetry. Maybe we don't appreciate poetry, we don't like reading poetry, and so we kind of blow over what's being stated in the poetry. But when a poem is placed in the midst of a narrative, it serves to indicate a turning point and often a climax in the story. It also serves as an interpretive key to the narrative that surround it. I'll give you an example of this. Exodus 15 records the Song of Moses. And what the Song of Moses does is it does it does two things. First of all, it recounts the exodus that they have just experienced by the hand of God, and it gives God all glory for what he has done in delivering them that they could not save themselves, but their mighty warrior God came and fought on their behalf and delivered them. And then the second movement of the song, it takes those events that they have just experienced, and it uses them to prophesy or predict how God is going to fight for them in the future. And so it's a major turning point, and it shows... Uh, It serves as an interpretive key to understand the coming events. In other words, from the very moment that the exodus occurred, the crossing of the Red Sea, those events were viewed as typical of future forms of salvation. So whenever New Testament writers start describing the salvation that Christ delivers, the ultimate salvation, as a new exodus, that is in accord with how exodus was used from the very beginning. Okay? Okay. That's part of what this Jonah song is doing. It is describing his experience in terms of death and resurrection, and it's placing the whole scene within context. It's providing cues and interpretive lenses through which to understand the story of Jonah. This is noting a Conversion, if you will, of the prophet within the belly of the fish, and he is praising God because had it not been for God sending the fish, he would have drowned in the sea. But God, through the fish, is saving Jonah so that he can go and preach the good news to a lost and dying world. In the discussion of Jonah within the belly of the fish, Estelle gives an introduction to the topic of typology. I think he does a pretty fair job. He's very conservative in his thoughts, and he is is very quick to point out the difference between typology and allegory. And he warns very strongly about allegorical interpretations and some things to keep in mind in order to avoid allegorical type of approaches. Allegorical approaches is why a lot of people out and out reject typology, but there is a drastic difference between typology and allegory. Typology is an interpretive hermeneutic that God has placed within Scripture, and it's there because he has placed it there. Now, this is not the end all on typology. One of the best reads that I've read on this is a chapter out of G.K. Bill's Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. We do carry that book in our bookstore as well. That is not a light read, but it is good and gives a very thorough discussion, I believe, of the topic of typology. The reason that Estelle brings up the topic of typology is because of the significance of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. If you recall in Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 through 42, Jesus presents the sign of Jonah as typical of what he is going to do when he dies, is in the tomb three days and three nights, and then resurrects. Estelle's treatment of this section, I believe, is superb, and he He points out that there's more going on in the story of Jonah than we realize, mainly because we have blown over, and I say we, I have blown over, the significance of the poetry or the song of salvation that Jonah, through inspiration, gives from the belly of the fish. This is not merely about Jesus being in the ground three days and three nights, but it's about the victory and triumph over death in the grave. It's the scene of the crucifixion included in the triumphant scene of salvation provided by the hand of God. And oh, by the way, Jesus is dying there. He is a representative of Israel. Okay? As a side point, I would point out that in Luke chapter 24, verse 46, the Bible says. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's Jesus speaking after his resurrection as he is interpreting the events of his personal death and resurrection to his disciples. And he says, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The question is, where is that written? Well, one explanation is that it comes from Jonah 2. I think that's a very strong case. Another case that I read recently, Uh, pointed out by Michael Morales in his book, Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord, is that Hosea 6 and verse 2 is more likely the passage that's under consideration. You look at Hosea 6-2, and this seems to be speaking of Israel and their restoration, but when you also understand that Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, Hosea, Hosea 6-2 is a restoration of Israel passage, and so you look at that and you say, well, let's talk about Israel. Well, later on in Hosea, in Hosea It's speaking of the restoration of Israel, God calling his son out of Egypt, and that's the passage that Matthew has used in Matthew 2 to talk about Jesus coming out of Egypt. And what it's doing is it's, it's using Jesus as in a representative role of Israel to fulfill prophecy. So the resurrection of Jesus or the calling out of Jesus from Egypt is the calling out of Israel from Egyptian bondage. It's a new exodus term in which the leader is representative of his people. I believe the same thing's going on in Hosea chapter 6 verse 2, in which Jesus, the representative of Israel, is resurrected and his resurrection becomes the resurrection or the restoration of Israel. I'll put that out there for what it's worth. Um, on the Hosea 11 verse 1 passage, the best material I have ever found on that outstanding material is in G.K. Bill's book again, The Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old. I say all this to say this. I believe Estelle does a really good job of interpreting Jonah 2, the song of Jonah, his song of salvation, and pointing it as it was intended to be understood toward Christ, his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. Moving on in the book, Estelle points out that there are narrative parallels between Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 3. In fact, he would call it a rewind or a start over. And Jonah, as he begins to do now what he was commissioned to do the first time, he goes forward and he has a message to Nineveh, "...yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown." That word, overthrown, is key. And it likely kind of echoes back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were said to be overthrown. And here you have this Jewish prof- prophet. He's going into a pagan city, and he's warning them, if they do not repent in 40 days and 40 nights, they are going to be overthrown. Nineveh responds positively. They do repent. Why are they repentant? Why are they so eager to listen to Jonah? Well, the Lord said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, that the sign of Jonah being in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In other words, Jonah's being swallowed up by the fish was a picture of death and resurrection. And the city heard about that, and they repented at the sign of Jonah. Jesus' point is, I will give you the same sign that was given to Nineveh. And the sad part of this story is that Israel, who should be God's people and open to the sign that is given to them by the supreme prophet of God, rejects it and is in a worse state than pagan Nineveh. Nineveh was willing to listen and willing to repent. This causes Jonah much disturbance, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But before we get there, Estelle gives an introduction to a very interesting topic. This is not, by any means, a full-fleshing out of the topic the end all of the discussion, but it is an introduction to the topic, and the topic is the concept of God being able to change His mind. The Bible says that whenever Nineveh, repen- whenever they ter- repented, that God repented. And the word "repented" shouldn't be interpreted as uh, He was sorry that He had done wrong, but it simply means that He changed His mind. And so the question becomes: Can God actually change His mind? And this is a long-going debate, very heated at times, but has a very long history between what is known as open theism, and on the other hand, what's called the traditional view of God's omnipotence and omniscience. The question is basically this, does God limit his knowledge and actually change his mind based on how people respond to God? In other words, open theists are arguing that man has free will, and God limits his knowledge. He can, he can know things that he wants to know, but he, generally speaking, limits his knowledge in order that he can react to man's free will and free choice. On the other hand, you have the traditional view that God knows everything that ever will be. Certainly, we would all agree that God knows everything that has been, but the discussion is, does God know everything that ever will be? The open theist says God has limited His knowledge, and the traditional position says God does know everything. This has a, a dis, it has bearing on the discussion of free will and the doctrine of predestination. Now Estelle falls down on the side of the traditional view, and in defense of his position, he quotes John Calvin and he freely embraces the the Calvinistic doctrine of the predestination of all things. He finds comfort in that, but he believes that all things are not only foreknown, but foreordained by God, both good and evil, and he's using Calvin to fight that, and one of the reasons he objects strongly to open theism is because of his Calvinistic view of predestination. In other words, he doesn't believe that man has free will. Now, he might argue against that in other places where the bearing isn't so direct, but in this discussion about open theism and the traditional view, he falls on the side of predestination. I believe this is very interesting and very telling of how Calvinists use the traditional view of God's omniscience. Now, maybe you can hold to the traditional view without holding to predestination, but one of the reasons Estelle has chosen the traditional view is because of his firm root in Calvinism. And Estelle views open theism as an attack on Reformed theology and Reformed predestination in particular. I think it's a very good introduction to the subject. By no means is it the end all, but it is a good introduction. I feel like Estelle, though he is against open theism, he does present their position fairly. He quotes from Greg Boyd, who wrote a famous book called God of the Possible, and he allows Boyd to present his position, and he doesn't sit back and just shred it. He allows the strong points to be heard, and then presents what he believes stronger counterpoints from the traditional view. It's very interesting, quite telling, a good introduction, and will provoke readers to want to study the discussion, the, the topic further. Back to the scene of Jonah. Whatever the situation is, Jonah preaches the message 40 days, and God will destroy it, uh, overthrow the city. They repent, and Jonah then leaves the city. He goes opposite the city and sits down to watch the destruction. He doesn't have confidence that Nineveh has actually truly repented, and he's hoping he gets to see fire rain down from heaven and burn this place to the ground. It's interesting. His leaving the city and going eastward and sitting on top of a hill or mountain to view the destruction of the city is very reminiscent of Ezekiel 10, where the glory of God departs The city of Jerusalem and the vision that God gave to Ezekiel and rest upon the Mount of Olives and views the destruction that comes raining down upon the city of Jerusalem. It's also reminiscent of Jesus leaving the temple courtyards in Matthew 23 and going opposite of the city to the same Mount of Olives as God's war chariot in Ezekiel 10, sitting down and predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in terms that are very reminiscent of the destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 10. Uh, What Jonah is hoping to see is what Ezekiel saw happen to Jerusalem and what Jesus predicted and actually came true in the destruction of Israel. Jonah, the convert from chapter 2 in the belly of the fish, has reverted back to his old ways of thinking. And so God sends an acted parable to him, and you have this a mushroom, or whatever it is, that springs up to life and then is taken away. Jonah sits in a judgment seat over God and condemns God and asks God to please kill him. This is the man who was saved from the belly in the belly of the fish, has praised God for his salvation, and is now wishing that God would just strike him dead. It's amazing how the the tides turn, but Jonah's not so different than we are, even realizing the salvation we have. In Christ, many times we revert to our old ways and our old ways of thinking, and we sit in judgment over God. Yet God is vindicated in the final chapter of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is res- removed from the seat of judgment, and the God of heaven and earth is established again as the creator of all things. And he also has the salvation of not only Israel, but the nations as a whole in mind. I hope that this review and these points i I brought out Will provoke your thought to studying the book of Jonah and picking up a copy of Brian Estelle's commentary. I thought this was just a really refreshing read. I I read it in two days. It probably took about, I don't know, three hours to get through the book. Again, it's not all that long of a read. Very enjoyable, very thought provoking. Estelle's a very good writer. He has a full view of inspiration in mind. He is from a reformed background, and that comes out a little bit in the book, so chew carefully in those areas. But all in all, I would give this an 8 or a 9 out of 10. If you want to pick up a copy, you can find that in our bookstore at christianresearcher.com. Copies are $7 and $3 shipping, so it's $10 for a brand new copy fresh from the publisher. Thanks for tuning into the program. Be sure to subscribe to the program if you haven't. You can find the podcast wherever podcasts can be found. We thank you for listening to the program. If you have any questions about today's book review or would like to ask questions about other books, please send them to us at christianresearcher at gmail.com. Thanks, have a great week, and tune in for another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the, price, the price. He paid it all. sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.